Hello and welcome back to our YOM Kona podcast. Today we have the first episode of a special series with our Rev and Rev School. Today, Andy shares with us the uniqueness of the time that we're in and contrasts how the early church responded to the difficult times to how we are responding to the difficult times that we're currently in. He reveals through history how God is moving and what God is doing. Let's jump right in. So, a lot of what I'm going to be sharing today comes from a book of a man named Dr. Stark. And uh, not, the, not, the, not the Marvel Tony. one. Yeah, not that guy. <laughs> Um, but uh, he's a he's a re- kind of a renowned uh, sociologist who has done probably more work than anyone else in ancient sociological history. So he's looking at ancient history through the lens of sociology, which is the study of people, the study of people movements, people patterns, people behavior, um, uh, growth of population, declines of population, uh, sociological trends. But not many people have really looked back thousands of years and tried to decipher what was happening at a sociological level. And so he um, is a believer, and he's doing it from a biblical perspective, and it's profound. His work is profound. So a lot of what I'm sharing today is out of a book that he wrote that I had to study in my, um, in my master's degree called The Rise of Christianity. And so this was a bit of an overview of that book, if you're wondering where I'm referencing most of this. So... Here's the premise that I'm going to go off of today and that Dr. Stark makes, is that um, his premise is that the church, by the time the church hit 300 AD, which if you know a little bit of history, that's still pre-Constantine, but it's right before Constantine takes over Rome and legalizes Christianity. So for the first 300 years, Christianity is still persecuted. Um, it's a, it's a, a considered marginalized. They were considered cultish in a sense, those who were followers of Jesus. And um, they, you know, this is in those 300 years, you have massive number of martyrs. Uh, You have the, you know, famous stories of the Colosseum and uh, believers being fed to lions and all kinds of awful stuff going on. And that really continues until about 300 AD, just a little past 300 AD, Constantine overthrows Rome and basically legalizes Christianity. He doesn't just legalize it, he basically makes it kind of the state religion. So... And there are a lot of positives and negatives to that. And depending on what you read and, you know, who you're talking to, there's plenty of negatives to that. And at the same time, there are also plenty of positives. If you were a believer that was on your way to be fed to the lions, you were pretty pumped the day Christianity became legal, right? So it's not all bad, but it's certainly not all good. But Dr. Stark's premise is this, is that by the time we get to 300 AD, the church has grown from an upper room of 120 people to 10% of the entire Roman Empire, which is a tipping point, according to tipping point you know, scientific calculations. That's when something tips over from a minority to beginning to gain a majority, momentum, right? So his question was that he approached is, how is that possible? How did Christianity go from 120 to an upper room, and 300 years later, it is 10% of the Roman Empire, and because of its force and its strength in numbers, becomes actually a legal religion in Rome and sort of becomes like a state religion. And he goes back to try and understand what led to that because rarely have we seen that uh, growth percentage-wise. Now, we've certainly seen more growth numbers-wise in the last, you know, uh, 100 to 200 years, but the Earth's also, you know, 5 billion, 6 billion, and 7 billion over these last several hundred years, right? But percentage-wise, this would be some of the fastest growth, if not the fastest growth of Christianity in history was actually in the first 300 years. 
he estimates that for it to go from the upper room to get to 10% of the Roman Empire, which was 6 million people, so it went from 120 to 6 million in 300 years, is it grew 40% every decade. So every decade, Christianity was growing 40%, which is unbelievable. It's just, you know, just unheard of. And so that was the original growth rate. And then his premise, basically, is to go back and go, how in the world did that happen? And so he studies all these factors throughout uh, the first 300 years of history, and he basically writes this book and many other things to say, these were the main things that I found. And I, I, when I read this, I was like, this is profound, because... He's tapping into what we need to tap into right now. And I'll explain that as we kind of wrap up and conclude our time together, because I'm going to end with some kind of application. What does this mean for us? So let me give you, I think I have, let me see here. Let me give you, I've got five points, okay? Point number one, write this down. This is real, this is, this is school here, guys. We're doing this. We're stretching our brains this morning. Number one is, is to the uh, um, catalyst to the growth in Christianity is that in the first uh, 300 years of the church, there were two major pandemics. They believe that one of them was smallpox, and they think that the other one was measles, and they wiped, up, wiped out up to a quarter of the population in major city centers and across the Roman Empire. So we're talking hundreds of thousands died in these two uh, pandemics. One was in 165 AD, and one was in 251 AD. And... Um, Tons of people are dying in the midst of this, but he actually studies the sociological response to pandemics and finds that this was one of the catalysts to the growth of the early church, and let me explain why. I'll just read you some of what I wrote as I had to write this paper, uh, kind of summarizing this. What resulted in so much loss of life also became a natural springboard to more people converting to Christianity. Stark points out three primary reasons this occurred. Number one is Christianity had an explanation for suffering, and the pagan world didn't. So they had no theology that allowed for suffering. They had no way to reconcile their gods of paganism and their sort of humanistic tendencies with suffering. It didn't fit into their worldview, so it completely ripped the rug out from underneath paganism's belief system because they had no grid for suffering. Eternal perspective on death and a hopeful outlook on the future was the strength of the believers. So you just imagine you're going through a major pandemic, and this is why I say you're going to find a lot of things that actually pertain to the hour that we have been in and are in, and a little bit of an embarrassment in way, the way that the church responded to our last pandemic versus how the early church responded to the pandemic. And it was the way that the perspective of the believers was no fear in death, and that eternity was way more significant than my temporary moment on this earth. So they weren't doing everything they possibly could to stay alive at the expense of other people's lives, at the expense of any, you know, common life and common sense. And the pagans looked on and went, why aren't they afraid to die? That alone began to cause paganism to crumble in the Roman Empire because of the belief of the believers. Let me go on with that. The Christian value for serving each other outside of their family groups postured them to be the hands and the feet of love to many facing the greatest crisis they'd ever seen. This not only led to a greater survival rate due to basic health care, but also the opening of people's hearts due to the love they received. More Christians survived the pandemic, increasing their percentage by the overall, in the overall population. In addition, more people converted as they felt the love and the care of the Christians. Okay, so let me explain this, because obviously that's a summary of, the, of a much larger point. Is that when the pagans got sick with the pandemic, they abandoned their families. They just left them. If someone was sick, they left them on the streets. They literally would carry them outside their houses and leave them on the streets to die. 
They were so afraid that they would get it as well. And they were so afraid of dying. They also gave no basic health care to the sick. They would abandon them. So these people that had measles or whether it was um, smallpox, they had no basic health care. Well, the believers weren't afraid to die. So they not only took care of their own, but they took care of those that everyone else abandoned. They were taking people off the streets into their homes. And it showed statistically, this is what he found, that people had a 60% higher chance of living if they had basic health care, which wasn't medicine. It was like a cool rag on their foreheads and someone standing with them while they were suffering. Like someone changing their bed, someone helping them to the bathroom, someone changing their clothes when they sweat through them, someone giving them baths when they were covered in sores, someone um, you know, helping regulate their fevers with cold claws. They showed that 60% more people survived with basic nursing than abandonment. And so guess what? Imagine now the pandemic breaks out, the pagan, the lost communities, like we're so afraid of dying, we abandon our moms, our dads, our kids, everyone. We just leave them in the home and take off or we throw them on the streets. And the believers are taking them in, and 60% of them are living that would have died. So when they live, what do you think they're going to do after they survive? Who do you think they're going to want to be with? Who do you think they're going to listen to? How do you think their own worldview is going to change? Their family abandoned them, and the stranger next door took them in, right? This was the Christian response to the pandemic. And because of it, not only did more believers survive because they were taking care of themselves and taking care of each other, but then those who survived who were pagan were far more likely to become Christians because that's what they saw in the care and the, and the hospitality and the kindness of those who took care of them. Lastly, many lost their natural social networks due to the death of close friends and family, and the believers were poised for, uh, and therefore they were poised for something new, and Christianity met that desire. So imagine your parents die, your siblings die, you're the only survivor, there's three survivors, your natural family unit has been decimated. You've got no sense of identity. And where do you find it outside of family? You find it in a community of believers that yeah. believe the same thing, that take care of each so other, good. celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus. And so because of it, mass numbers of people turn to Christianity in the midst of the pandemic. Isn't that fascinating? Mm -hmm. That a pan two pandemics became catalysts to major growth. I won't go into all the numbers, but they trace the percentage of Christianity pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. It's mind-blowing. And it was literally because the Christian response, I just plant that seed in your hearts because... I'm a little bit embarrassed of how we responded to the last pandemic. Yeah. And, um, and uh, I'm just a little bit, I, I just see how far we've fallen from even, and I remember talking a lot about this with our friends in the community, is that, this is going to sound morbid, don't hear this wrong, but we have lost the dignity of death. Yeah. We've lost the dignity of it. And because of it, we will do anything to not die. Anything. To any extreme, to any cost, anything to not suffer and not die. The early church didn't know anything different than suffering and death. Wow. That's all they knew. Suffering for their faith. And, you know, in the Roman Empire at this time, the average age of someone dying was between 30 and 40. Like just dying of natural causes. People weren't living longer than that. So death had to have dignity because it was so common. You, you were never going to be in a family where every sibling survived into adulthood. Never. It was never going to happen. One of your siblings was going to die of an illness, a sickness, not having health care, not having basic medicine. It was just normal. So if you didn't have a worldview that dignified death, then you would just, you'd be shattered, broken, and traumatized 24-7. Some of our trauma today is because of a lack of revelation of the dignity of death. 
and it didn't traumatize them the same. The pain was there, the loss was there, but the trauma wasn't the same because they saw the dignity of eternal life. And it was like the whole, our whole life and purpose was not just see how long we could stay alive. Look at the great cost we go to to stay alive these days. Yeah. It's astounding what is done to try and keep the human body moving forward, partly because we don't have a real dignity or a theology of the, of the, of the power of death and crossing to the other side and eternal life. Does that make sense? Does that sound too morbid? You guys with me? I'm going to need a little verbal kind of yeah. conversation yes. throughout today. Just that you're kind of with me, that you're hearing this. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah? And, um, and, and it's okay. Let's move to the second one. Second point, point number two. Here we go. Point number two is that the way that the early church treated women was a massive catalyst to the growth of the early church. Let me just read to you again what I wrote here. I marvel at God's value system and how it is naturally set up to grow as his ethic is lived out. In summary, Stark proves four main points about the way Christians grew due, due to their value for women. First, listen to these, you can write them down if you want. Christianity prohibited practices of abortion and infanticide that were completely normal in Roman society. Baby girls were the greatest victim of infanticide. Naturally, the Christian view of human life led, led to many more baby girls surviving. So think about this. In Roman culture, abortion was totally normal, and you would just imagine they didn't have the health care that we had today, and because of abortion being normal but um, rudimentary at best, is not only did children, of course, die, but many women died from botched abortions. And yet the value for abortion, there was no value for human life in pagan society. Not only that, but infanticide was normal. Infanticide would be that the child was completely born, totally born healthy, but you don't want the child, and so it was, it was totally okay to throw that child in the, in the trash heaps in Rome. It was okay to leave them on the streets and let them die. Uh, pagan culture was just completely had no qualms with this. Um, again, a parallel to our own day. Um, not only do, have we seen the greatest manifestation of evil through the fighting for abortion as a right, literally the right to murder, and the sadness over the response of the church even, again, like just that we've lost our prophetic edge on this. People are too afraid of the mob to say what's really true. And, um, and because of that, you know, Roe v. Wade gets overthrown, and you don't even find Christians and pastors celebrating that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a travesty, guys. We've just lost our way, which doesn't mean that we undervalue women and men who are in difficult places that don't know what to do and don't know any better. They don't know any different, right? They, they don't know Jesus. doesn't mean that we're not compassionate and empathetic, but we've lost our prophetic edge yeah. that we don't even have a voice into this issue so much anymore. But you need to know is that what's being battled in the courts right now in many states across America is full-blown infanticide. Full-blown infanticide. There are a number of governors right now in America that are pushing for the legalization of post-birth abortion, which they don't want to call infanticide, but it is infanticide. It means that once a child's born, what's the difference? Is is The deal is they're actually following their own logic. Yeah. So they're actually being consistent. Because if you don't think human life has value, then you can take any human life. Yeah. So then, you know, um, eugenics is legal, and then uh, euthanasia. Yeah. What's the big deal with euthanasia? So they're finally being consistent. It's inconsistent to say that you could only take the life of a child in the womb. And that's been our argument for so many years. That's inconsistent. Well, the world has gone to such a place now, they're like, yeah, you're right. Let's just be consistent. Yeah. So any life can be taken, whether they're too old to be considered a viable member of society or whether they've just been born. What's the difference between abortion and a baby that's seven months old or of ending the life of a child that's, ten month, uh, that's been born for one or two months, right? That's, that's being battled in the courts of our nation right now. 
And so this was happening in pagan society. But again, the Christian response, guys, which is so prophetic to our own time that we live in right now, is that the Christian response was they went and rescued the children. So these babies that were left alone, which were mostly women, because it was more valuable in culture to have a son than it was a daughter, all of a sudden, more baby girls are being saved, but they're being raised by Christian families. So then all of a sudden, there are more, there are more women that are Christian because more babies were raised by Christian families. Not only that, I'm going to go to point number two on this, and I know this is kind of, we're hitting some heavy topics on this, but stick with me. Second, as a result, women outnumbered men in Christian communities. Why? Because they rescued so many of these children, and they found sociologically that women were naturally more tender to the gospel message, okay? Yeah. And that's a fact, historically. Amen. So because of that, the Christian women were forced to find husbands among pagan communities at times because there were not enough men to marry. And majority of times, because of the ethic of those Christian women, their husbands would come to the revelation of Jesus. Wow. So then the gospel spread because of the godliness of those women, and there simply weren't enough men in the church for them to marry. Now, I'm not proposing and, and supporting evangelistic dating right now. I'm simply telling you what happened in history. Third, women were oppressed and extremely looked down on in Roman society. They had little value in society. On the other hand, Christianity treated women with the same dignity as men. Women were 100% equal to men in the early church in terms of value system and dignity. Same human value where literally in Roman culture, a woman was of lesser value than a man. And so then naturally, if you're a woman, what do you think you're going to think of Christianity if they give equal value to women? Therefore, many more women were getting saved, which led back to point number two, is that saved women living the Christian ethic led their husbands to Jesus. Okay, and uh, third, on the other hand, Christianity treated women with the same dignity. In contrast, uh, could not have been starker, and therefore many women converted to Christianity. Lastly, increased value, more women than men, and the Christian ethic that outlawed abortion and infanticide naturally all led to a higher birth rate in the church, which led to more babies being born to Christian families than pagan families. That's point number two. What do you guys think on that one? Crazy? It's so, cool. so wild. This is so important that YWAM has died for 60 years. We have died on the hill of empowering women, and we will never stop dying on that hill. It is so important that we as a movement value women, women in leadership um, across the earth. And we might live in societies now where that doesn't feel like as much of an issue as it would have been 20, 30 years ago. I'm not saying that it isn't still an issue, but there are many nations around the world where it is still the opposite. Yeah. And it is still very much that women don't have the same value. We must fight in those places for the value of women. Okay, point number three. got to keep moving. You guys good if I keep going? Yeah. And, okay, here we go. Point number three is, that, um, is the impact that Christianity has cities. This is fascinating. Cities are a sociological phenomenon all on their own. Cities with higher population of adherence to Judaism and Gnosticism experienced great growth of Christianity. Stark points to the cultural continuity between the faiths and the Christianity as the reason for this growth. Stark spends a good deal of time explaining how difficult life in the cities of the first three centuries really was. Listen to this. He specifically focuses on Antioch, which was the hub of the early church. That's where Paul hubbed out of for all three of his missionary journeys, and it was after Jerusalem it shortly became the center of Christianity. Using historical data and estimates that Antioch had a population density, listen to this, of 117 people per acre. 117 people per acre. Today, in New York City, there are 37 people per acre. So just think about how dense that population is, okay? 
Sewage would have been poorly dealt with, no sewage systems, open sewage. Rubbish and filth accumulated everywhere. Life expectancy was less than 30 years old in Antioch when he did the, the uh, statistics on it. Less than 30, life expectancy. Crime rates would have been massive. Populations were transient and ethnically diverse. Natural disasters and epidemics were common occurrences and attacks from other cities and regions were frequent and destructive. Listen to this. Stark estimated that every 15 years, a major natural disaster or social catastrophe took place. Could you imagine living in a city that every 15 years, a major natural disaster or social catastrophe took place and how unsettled cities would have been in the first 300 years of, uh, of history. Stark uses all this data about cities to show that Christianity was perfectly suited to meet the felt needs of the people, to offer a family, charity, belonging, basic health care, and eternal hope would have been a powerful contrast to the lives that they've been living for so long. So imagine the, the difficulty of living in a city, right? The trauma, the tragedies, um, the, you know, another army coming to take, you know, siege your city, natural disasters, pandemics, um, waves of sickness because of the uh, population density, uh, the poverty, the sewage. Like, they, why would you ever want to live in a city is really what you arrive at. But again, many people did. So then imagine you're living in all that, and then there's a neighbor next to you that is full of joy, that practices basic hygiene and health care. This is bigger than we realize. Where do we get our hygiene and health care worldview? Where do we get it, though? We get it clearly from the Old Testament. The Old Testament literally taught what to do with skin defilement. Old Testament literally taught where to go to the bathroom outside the camp. The Old Testament literally teaches how to isolate someone until they're better so that others don't get sick. There are literal Bible verses in the Old Testament. You guys all just read them, didn't you? Yeah. Weren't they a little boring? You're like, what in the world? Skin defilement, mold in the house, right? Well, imagine if you literally applied those in an impoverished society and how different your life quality would be. Wow. We don't think about it now because we're like, this is so archaic. It's not archaic in the first 300 years. They, no one's living like they're living, but they have the, the Jewish scriptures informing them on basic hygiene and basic health care. Talked about what a woman should do on her period. Talked about, you know, how trash should be dealt with. Talked about how human feces should be dealt with. Talked about how illnesses should be dealt with. The pagan society has no understanding on this, and your neighbor is living cleaner, healthier, and happier. What are you going to do if you're that pagan living next to them? So Christianity explodes because it has an answer for cities. Guys, this could not be more true of the hour that we're living in right yeah. now. Look at the headlines of the crime in our cities. Look at the ex explosions of uh, murder to theft um, to looting. Like these were not issues, at least in Western nations, like 50, 60 years ago. Today, it's the norm. When a hurricane goes through and ravages Florida, what happens? Everyone's just literally breaking into stores and stealing stuff. We are a pagan society today. But there's no solution. It's the same solution it was 300, yeah. you know, 17, 1800 years ago. Is that when believers live like believers were called to live, the world takes notice and goes, they're living differently. And that looks way better than my store being looted. That looks way better than me having to protect my home with a shotgun. That looks way better than my car being stolen again for the third week in a row. 
right? That looks way better than a riot downtown in my city. Are you with me? So it's just literally, they're just living the Christian ethic. All they're doing, guys, no, and this is what I love. Stark is a believer. He goes, you can explain the growth without having to add any supernatural growth. He goes, it is sociologically evident why the early church grew. And he goes, that's without the supernatural. Yeah. He goes, you add that in and it's a whole different story. He goes, but all the growth I found was purely believers living Bible verses. Wow. Okay, okay, this is good. I don't know. I'm enjoying this. I don't know if you are. This might be just this is so I'm awesome. more for the nations right now. Woo. Almost done. Um, yep, last one. Sorry, there weren't five, there were four. Here's the last one. Fascinating to look at martyrdom as a catalyst for growth. Social science shows that the more one sacrifices for their belief system, the more value they others place on it. Isn't that interesting? In light of our current safe Christianity. Social scientists call the benefits of joining a faith system compensators. Basically, these are rewards for membership. So they talk about if there was a reward to join a faith system, they call them compensators. The higher the reward is, the more motivating it is for others to join. Compensators are more attractive when they are enjoyed collectively, when they generate tangible results, and when, they pr when promoted by leaders who live according to the same standards as the members. This is social science. This isn't Christianity. This made martyrs one of the greatest pictures of the value for their faith. Their suffering showed that they believed the rewards of following Christ far outweighed their sacrifices. The very presence of persecution and martyrdom significantly diminished the presence of free riders, which is a sociological term, not a Christian term. Free riders, those who, follow, those who are followers by name only. So those who are followers by name only. So the martyrdom and suffering basically limited, eliminated free riders in Christianity. In other words, there was no one living by name alone in Christianity. You were in or you weren't because there was a price to pay. The very presence of the persecution martyrdom, read it again, significantly diminished the presence of free riders, those who are followers by name only. This also created an appeal that the collective group was passionately dedicated to their faith. Stark points to the fact that Christianity had strong stigmas and sacrifices attached to it as one of the very reasons that people were intrigued and ended up joining them. You read that in the book of Acts, don't you? It says all the people feared them, and then the very next verse, nevertheless, many joined them. Yeah. It's literally one verse after the other. You guys read that? You guys just read that, right? Oh, I know yeah. you read thousands of verses, so okay if you don't know. <laughs> they literally say all the people feared the church, nevertheless, many were added to their number. That's what Stark found in social science, is that the more people sort of stand in awe, the more they actually want to join. When the stigmas and sacrifices are shared by a tight-knit group with a tremendous sense of belonging and care for one another, then the stigma and sacrifice to, uh, serve to create even more dedication and appeal. So again, the pagan world looked on and they went, everybody wants to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Oh my gosh. Whether they're believers or whether they're not, everybody wants to join something bigger than them, right? So imagine the pagans then, they look on, and they go, these guys believe their faith. Like, they paid a real price. And then they're like, but they love each other. And they're close-knit communities. And Stark's point was that that's part of the reason it grew 40% every year. Thank you so much. Mostly fell on the yeah, floor Daniel. already. There we go. I got a little too excited there. <laughs> um, 
So Sark points to that, that awe, that they would stand back and go, they believe so much because they're willing to suffer and die, but they're close-knit, they love each other, and they take care of each other. And that appeal not only limited free riders, in other words, there was no one going to church on Sunday, but living a different life. The cost was too high. So there's no one who would bear the stigma of Christianity and not live the life of Christianity. Well, today, and in the last 50, 60, you could say 100 years, especially many nations, is that there was no longer stigma to be Christian. In fact, there have been eras where it was stigma to not be a Christian. But Christianity never thrives in safe environments for very long. You can almost start the clock for when Christianity becomes easy to when it will become irrelevant. You can almost start the clock throughout history. Why do I know that? Because the church stopped growing 40% every 10 years the moment Constantine legalized Christianity. You watch the growth of the church. 40% every 10 years, 10 years, 10 years, 10 years, 10 years, legalized Christianity, it flatlined. The growth of Christianity stopped the moment that it was legalized. Why? Free riders. All of a sudden, you could have people that were Christian by name, but not Christian by lifestyle, which watered down the buy-in, which caused people to not really want to buy in anymore. There's no cost. There's no sacrifice. Pretty soon, everyone's a Christian, but now there's no ethic. There's no common ethic. Like, right? Think about today. Like, today, you can be a Christian and justify pornography. You can be a Christian and justify abortion. You can be a Christian and justify swearing. You can be a Christian and justify gossip, right? You can be a Christian and full of judgment and criticism, These are all against the teachings of Scripture, aren't they? They're all against the person of Jesus. You can be a Christian and, you know, ordaining homosexual pastors. Like, so the the water level is so watered down that there's no cost. There's no stigma. There's no strong core to the belief system. Therefore, there's no appeal to join it. Imagine today you're looking at the church and you go, well, they're, I don't know, they seem to be struggling as much as I am. Um, They're as medicated as I am. And you're you're lost, and you're like their um, their marriages are seem to be crumbling, like mine is struggling, and um, their kids seem like they're struggling, like mine are struggling. Like, why would I join them? Do you know what I mean? Why would I give up my Sunday morning? I'd rather watch football. Like, there doesn't seem to be a stark contrast between my life and their life. Well, in the early church, the contrast was stark. You were dying for your faith. You were suffering for your faith. You were valuing women when others didn't value women. Right? You were being fed to the lions. You were running into the pandemic instead of running away from the pandemic. Everything about the believers, the world looked on and went, they're weird, they're marginalized, and I kind of want to join them. (laughs) Come on, guys. It's our stigma that actually creates our appeal, and we need to recover our stigma once again. Wow. Are you guys with me still? Yeah. Okay. So what are some applications to this? We'll wrap up and I'll end with a few questions because I'm sure we've stirred up a few things. I know I've probably hit a few hot topics, but hey, this is Rev and Rep. If we're not dealing with the big stuff, what are we doing, right? Amen. Uh, Applications. Christian ethic is more powerful than we realize. Us just simply living the teachings of Scripture is one of the greatest testimonies to the transformed life. It's one of the greatest testimonies to the gospel. We think it has to be like a great preacher. We think it has to be like um, a, a really, I, and you got to know me, you guys know me, I am all for the supernatural. Man, I want people getting out of wheelchairs, I want the dead raised, I want the blind seeing, I want it all. But sometimes in our pursuit of that, we don't attach enough value to simply living Christian obedience. Wow. Simply living 
Bible verses, simply obeying Jesus, simply walking in kindness, simply not living like the world. And what Stark proved in the first 300 years is that the Christian ethic was possibly the most powerful force in the growth of Christianity. We value all human life, women, children, preborn, postborn, the elderly, the sick, those with measles, those with, um, you know, pandemic sickness. We value all human life. That caused them to cause, stand in stark contrast to the rest of the world. That alone led to part of its growth. So the Christian ethic is more powerful. Guys, there's such a battle today over the Christian ethic. There's such a battle. And the battle is that we would so water down our faith that there's no real clear lines of what we're called to and what not. And I don't mean you guys, but this is you guys are leaders, and this is leadership conversation here, yeah. is that the Christian ethic's been so watered down. You can absolutely be a Christian today and totally justify sleeping with your girlfriend before marriage. It should not be. It cannot be if we're going to recover our prophetic edge, right? We've got to live different. And you got to know today, to be a believer that actually believes that sex was solely for, um, for the covenant of marriage is a sign and a wonder. 40% of Christians today don't think that sex should wait for marriage. 40% don't think we should wait for marriage for sex. Yeah, exactly. Just that alone, the world will go stand in awe. And they may make fun of you. It's the best thing they could possibly yeah. do. It's the best thing that could possibly happen. They might be like, what's wrong with you? That stigma, best thing that could ever be attached to you. It's the most attractive thing about you. Yes. It's the most beautiful thing about you is you live different. When pandemics hit, we're not about self-preservation. When pandemics hit, we're about how can we serve? How can we help? Wow. Who can we help? Who can we serve? This is not about me living as long as I can. This is about me obeying Jesus. Yeah. It's a different way of living than all of society right now, right? It's just, it's different all around us. The Christian ethic is way more powerful than we realize. Second thing I want to say to you, this is, was one of my conclusions from Stark's book. For 300 years, there were basically virtually very few buildings that the church could gather in in mass. They did have places they could meet. Antioch, they believe, met in a large cave. Um, there were places that they did meet, the catacombs in, uh, in Rome. Um, they, they met in different places, but largely, and I'm making this up, okay, so give me some liberty, 90% of Christian meetings were in the home. And the home was not a place for Netflix binging and just eating and just recreation. Your home was your greatest weapon. If I could get them in my home, there was a high chance they were going to encounter the love of Jesus. Yeah. If I could get them around my family, there was a high chance they were going to see something different than paganism. We need to redeem our homes again. Yeah. I encourage you sometime, read through the book of Acts and look at everything that happened in a home and not a church building. And you'll realize everything. Where did the outpouring of the Spirit happen? In an upper room, in a home. Where did Cornelius get saved? Which was literally the beginning of the Gentile church, which leads to us being saved today, in his home. Where did Peter have his vision? In his home. Where did Paul get healed of his blindness after you know he was blinded by the glory of God and get his assignment? In a home, while he was waiting. Where did signs, wonders, and miracles break out? In homes and on the streets. Where was the building shaken after the disciples were persecuted and then began to pray? In a home, right? All of it happens in a home. Today, what are homes? Homes are where we retreat. Homes are where we veg out. Homes are where today, now they found that statistically for an adult in the United States today, there is only an hour and a half on average that an adult is not in front of a screen today. Hour and a half. That an adult is not in front of a screen today. The average Gen Zer spends 9 to 12 hours in front of a screen right now. 9 to 12 hours. So what, what's happening in our homes versus what happened in the early church homes? Let me give you this one 
statistic that uh, that I that we did some research on and found that I thought was pretty fascinating in regards to uh, in regards to our home. All under the point of the need to redeem the home because that was part of the catalyst to the growth in the early church. Okay, for an average person uh, today, this is a current statistic uh, for a kid. They will spend seven to eight hours a day in school, and they will spend seven and a half hours on a screen. Okay, and they will spend twelve minutes at their dinner table with their family, on average, on average. Which means uh, a total for adults, those were kids, adults average 12 hours a day in front of a screen. A adults average only one hour and 12 minutes a day that they aren't on a screen. Which means in a lifetime they've spent 18 years of their life looking at a screen. 18 years. That's the, I know it's depressing, isn't it? Like, please stop. 18 hours of life were spent in front of a screen over a lifetime. Nine years of those were literally watching TV. Nine years of life were spent watching TV. Do you know how many languages you could learn in that time? Do you know how many, what an expert you could become of anything you wanted to become in nine years of watching TV? Becoming an expert of nothing? Becoming good at nothing? Come on, just being honest, guys. This is real talk. You guys didn't sign up for Rev and Rev because you wanted feathery, ear-tickling messages, all right? This is real talk, okay? So in an entire lifetime today, according to these statistics, an average adult by the end of their life will spend 18 years of their lives in front of a screen and they will spend 200 days with their family at the dinner table. 18 years in front of a screen and 200 hours, sorry, 200 days, 200 days at the dinner table with their family. Early church had no screens. They were pretty effective. Now, I'm not saying demonizing the screens. All I'm talking about is we need to redeem our homes again. Redeem your dorm rooms again. You might go like, I just in a dorm room with six others. Redeem it. Those were the places of worship. That's where they took communion. That's where they taught the word. That's where they prayed for each other. That's where they you know, encouraged each other. That's where they shared with the lost. It was all in homes. Homes were the most effective weapon of the early church. And today they are almost exclusively used for recreation and leisure. Okay, number three, don't run from persecution. Don't run from being pegged, being um, cornered, from being labeled. Don't run from it. Embrace it. It's actually part of our intrigue. It's part of what, in the end, will draw the loss to us. Guys, you got to know right now, paganism is cannibalism at the end of the day. It always eats itself. And that's exactly what's happening right now. Paganism destroys itself. Yeah. It destroys itself with anarchy. It destroys itself with violence. It destroys itself by literally killing its own and therefore limiting its own population. So paganism always dies out in the end. I think we're on the verge. We are hitting like a pinnacle of pagan thought with some of where we've gone, even with how um, children are, you know, parents are being denied the ability to sign off on their child getting a sex change. I mean, we're hitting pinnacles of, of paganism. You've got to know that, which is classic for paganism is the, is, it's called the cult of children, where children are considered adults just as much as adults. Therefore, whatever they want, they can have, right? And uh, that also leads to the sexualization of children, which also leads to there being no age limit to consensual sex. You just need to know where paganism goes. No age limit. And that's not far away. Meaning, like, there's still a little bit of common sense out there that says when someone's a minor, you know, that, 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 and someone's not, that that's still illegal. That will go away because that's where paganism goes. And if a child can choose its gender, then a child, a child can choose to have sex yeah. at six, seven years old. Yeah. Yeah. 
And if, if everybody has the freedom of choice and an individual freedom is the god of a society, then that's where it goes. You just need to know. But that destroys itself. Paganism destroys itself with disease. It destroys itself with violence. We need to know paganism will crumble. It will. But the church will rise and shine with the glory of the Lord. There's good news in all of this. So when you see this rise of humanism, don't get discouraged. Paganism is eating itself. What's important, though, is that we don't get drawn into a subtle form of pagan Christianity and get a little bit of world inside of us and no longer have our prophetic edge, no longer have our stigma to following Jesus. Because when it crumbles, they're going to come running for hope. And guess who's going to give it to them? Followers of Jesus, whose homes have been redeemed, who value women, who value children, who value the old, who value all human life, who value the sick, who run into pandemics, right? Who's going to be the hope as it begins to crumble? Don't run from persecution. Last one. I don't know what I meant by that last one. Okay. <laughs> I read it three times, and I'm like, I have no idea what that means. I wrote it early this morning. Okay. Thoughts or questions on this? Thoughts or questions? What resonates with you? What's hitting your heart? We're in 300 years of Christianity, and I just want us to have some of these basic thoughts as we launch into a lot more to come from here. Yeah. I guess it's definitely eye-opening because a lot of, like, what I hear just talking to Christians about, like, the things that are happening now, they're like, this is the worst it's ever been. But just the realization that this has happened. It has happened before. And it's happening again. Yes. It shouldn't really be a surprise. That's right. That's absolutely right. Do you know that they said that the final, the final stage of the collapse of a society, which has been studied through many societies, is androgyny, which is gender fluidity. They find the final stage of the collapse of a society because, and just so you know why, this is not a, this is not a political issue, guys. This is an Imago Day issue, right? Don't put this in politics. This is the image of God and His creation issue. This is an insult yeah. to God's nature and character, right? And it's, it's because it's the, it's the pinnacle of the breakdown of the family unit. And the yeah. family is the genesis of the kingdom. The whole beginning of the kingdom of God on earth was a man and a woman in a garden under covenantal marriage about to have kids. That was the beginning of the kingdom, right? Yeah. And so when that gets torn to its absolute you know, last thread, then that's where societies do collapse. They actually yeah. collapse, right? And so androgyny is often the final, which is gender fluidity, which is the denial of male and female and, and from birth on. And history shows that. That was Rome's final act was androgyny. And so the, then the church was postured and exploded in growth because of it. So you're so right to say, this is not the first time we've been here. Um, and uh, and the, the church is resilient. It will not fail. You, do, you guys get that. We will, it won't lose. Like Jesus won't lose. Yeah. He doesn't know how to lose. Yeah. He will never lose, right? Yeah. He is winning, but he's winning through a submitted, obedient bride. Yeah. Other right. questions or thoughts? Yeah, right here and then there. Yeah. How do we, like, if we've been here before, like, how did we get out of it? Like, how do we do it? Exact things I just shared with you. And that, that's what we're going to walk through for the next 2,000 years of church history is what did they do in their dark times? But these four things I highlighted... And this is, if I could summarize one thing for you today, because there's a there's hundred we should say, but if I was to give you one, because each one you should walk away with something really clear, it is the power of the Christian ethic. What, what do we need to do? Live the Bible. Live the Bible. When I, I work in Bhutan, I've been there 15 times every year, persecuted church, underground church, and they're exploding. When I first went, there were 6,000 believers. They say there are 35,000 believers in the nation right now. It's exploded in growth, right? I asked the pastor I work with, I go, how, do you, how are you doing it? You know, what do you teach your people? 
he was, he was confused by my question. He said, we give them Bibles, we tell them to read them, and do what it says. I was like, why don't we do that? That's so profound. And they're exploding in growth, and it's lay-based, it's not leader-based, it's not a, a hierarchical structure, it's a person in the village who's a farmer who's leading that little house church and reading the scriptures, and why don't we just do everything we read today? And it's exploding. So my simple answer to that would be what we said today, but the Christian ethic is far more. You, you can't have a Christian ethic without Jesus as Messiah. So I would never say ethics alone bring salvation. The revelation of Jesus brings salvation. Because that can become a little bit of like a, um, it can become a little bit of a humanitarian gospel, and it's not. It's the Christian ethic because of the crucified Christ that makes it so pow powerful. Does that make sense? Yeah. Next, yeah. Yeah, that was my question, is like how to actively bring this culture to yeah. a secular place. Live it. Yeah. Live it. Ask yourself the question at the end of today, what am I not living in obedience to the scripture? Mm -hmm. Ask yourself when you leave your season here in Kona and launch into whatever's next, who's your community that's going to live the Christian ethic no matter how much they're made fun of? Yeah. Who's your community that's going to live every single Bible verse no matter how much they're mocked for it? And that community will become the potent force of transformation in wow. that city, that town, that village, wherever it may be. Mm -hmm. Other questions or thoughts? Yeah, we've got a bunch. What time do you guys end? Who's, what time is your teacher teaching? Um, okay, two questions, then we're ending. So sorry, last two. Yep. Oh, sorry, he's got the mic. And then you, then you, you're next. Yep. Okay, so you're saying that how the church sorry, exploded Cam. in that one country. Is because that, for example, Cambodia with the Khmer Rouge, yeah. that their their hearts are so ready and it's just exploding. But in America, it's not because we think we have it all. To with like certain cultures, some have to already be like put down because it's already happened a lot. And so now they're ready. Now that's why the church is transforming. But yeah. in America, it's not really happening because we still have it. So now it's just we're waiting for the collapse. Is that like? We, America will never recover the potency of the gospel until we have to pay a price for the gospel again. We won't. Safe Christianity lacks the potency of the gospel. America, will, the church lacks the power of transformation until the church has to pay a price to believe in Jesus again. And it's starting to happen. Um, in Europe, there, it's 20, 30 years ahead of us. You, you, a lot of the kids that I'm working with in Norway, they were made fun of every all through high school for believing in Jesus, believing in morality, believing in sex for marriage. Like They were made fun of. Because of it, there's a new rumbling in Norway. Because the believers who paid that price, maybe it wasn't lions in the arena, but they paid a little bit of a price, they recover the transforming power of the gospel. Safe Christianity lacks potency. God didn't want it that way. It's our human nature that when we get safe and life gets easy, we lose our potency. It's not his fault. It's not the gospel's fault. It's that when we start coasting, and it's just acceptable to be a Christian, you have no urgency. Our prayer lives suffer, right? Our sacrificial life suffers. It becomes easy. You can move into dominating forms of faith, which we've seen in our history, right? Because now you're the top dog. Now you're a, now you're a powerful force. Christianity was not a powerful force from the top down. Christianity was a powerful force from the bottom up. Mm. We're going to serve the pandemic. We're going to go into the sickness. Yeah. We're going to take the cities through servant-heartedness, not dominion, right? Not mm. top-down dominion. Yeah. When Christianity gets into top-down dominion, it loses its potency because we become political. We become um, all these other things. We become rich. We become wealthy. And when we lose those, we lose the Sermon on the Mount. The moment we lose the Sermon on the Mount, we've lost pot the potency of the gospel. So we need to pay a price for the gospel again. Last wow. one. <clears throat> like, okay, so the thing I love about you the most is like, 
how I see your kids love Jesus. You get me? And like, um, how do I say it? How do I say it? Like, I had it. You know, you got it. But then like, yeah. How did you make, how did you make it like a cool thing for Asher to love the Lord that much? Man. You get me? That's a great question. Like, I feel like, I like I see, they got TV shows about like our pastor kids, like running from the yeah, Lord, and yeah. you get me stuff like that. So like, how did you? What did you? I don't know. What did you do different? It's a big question with a lot that I could answer because it's been it's the number one passion of our hearts is our kids more than anything else, more than the nations, more than YWAM, more than anything is our kids. But I would just say we are by far uh, not perfect parents. But what we tried to do is that our kids would never see duplicity or like. Um, they would never see hypocrisy or division in our lives. So I am not different on a stage than I am at home with my kids. And I am not um, different in leadership than I am in the way that I talk about my wife. I don't flatter her in public and then yell at her in private. And my kids have just seen the consistency of our lives from no matter where we are or what we're doing. I would say number two, I've taken them all over the world. Asher's been to 22, 23 countries with me now. So he has seen Islam, he has seen Buddhism, he has seen Hinduism, he's seen blind eyes open, he saw deaf ears open. So when he was young, faith was very real and it's just kind of stayed real for him. So there's a lot that could be said on that. We're far from perfect and honestly, most days I just like literally thank God for his mercy over their lives. I'm like, God, I don't know how you did it. I made so many mistakes, but you did it. And Asher to me is a sign and a wonder. And his other siblings are, because he, I would say he turned a corner his sophomore year. My, but because of that, my girls are turning a corner like their eighth grade and freshman years. And it's, it's wild. Hadassah is going to be a force to be reckoned with. I, I don't know what that woman's going to do, but uh, there's, she, there's power, power in that woman. So, um, love my kids. Thanks for asking that. It's a lot bigger question probably. All right. Bless you guys. Have a great day. I hope this was helpful and encouraging. Thank you for listening. We hope you're blessed by this message. For more on revival history, stay right here on the YWAM Kona podcast.